I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Do not judge, lest you be judged yourselves. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will he give him a stone? Or if he shall ask him for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them. For this is the law and the prophets. And I'll pray. Father, we again just thank You for all that You are to us. Thank You, God, for the work that You have accomplished on our behalf, sending Jesus into this world not counting our trespasses against us, but forgiving us and reconciling us to yourself. And we thank you, God, for this word here, and we ask again that you would speak to us and that we would have ears to hear and that our hearts would receive and respond in faith and obedience to all that you want to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Great to be with you again today. And we're coming here now rapidly to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus has said many things over the course of this sermon, now he's turning and he's talking a bit more about personal relationships. And one of the things that he has to say here is that we are not to judge one another. So it's a very clear statement and one that we all have to live with and find exactly the balance in all that Jesus is saying. Um, some of us can be quite proficient in judging others, and so, so much so that we may even think it might be our spiritual gift. I heard a true story of a pastor after his first sermon at a new church where he had been hired on. A dear lady came up to him afterwards and said, Pastor, I just want you to know that God has given me the gift of criticism, and I will be criticizing your sermons for you. And he didn't miss a beat, and he says, Dear lady, I would ask you to do with your gift what the man with one talent did with that one talent. <laughs> Those of you who know your Bible, bury it. Just bury it. I have a couple of friends that I'm telling you, they could say anything to you and do it with a smile on their face and you would not take offense. It's remarkable. They could put the, their arm around your shoulder and say, your mother is ugly and you are stupid. And you would just smile. <laughs> you would not begin to take offense. It's a gift that they can do that. I am not one of those people. Here Jesus is being very straightforward 
Do not judge, lest you be judged yourselves. Probably one of the most um, quoted verses in all the Bible, especially by unbelievers. They love this verse. So as soon as you begin to talk to a person who doesn't know Christ about his life or the choices that he's making, aren't you a Christian? Uh-huh. Doesn't the Bible say you're not supposed to judge me? So it becomes a great verse for silencing other people who want to speak in your life, for intimidating you from standing up and speaking the truth. It becomes a great verse to allow you to get away with whatever you want because nobody else is supposed to say anything. Well, that is not what Jesus meant. In fact, the whole verse is do not judge, not period, do not judge, period, but it's do not judge lest you be judged yourselves. The Bible never forbids all judgment. That would be like telling us don't be human beings. And I mean that in the sense that the word judge here is, comes from a Greek word, krino or krino, and it's a very broad word, and it can mean anything from um, to separate um, when you're cooking from one, one thing to another and to make a decision or to condemn. It's the word we get critic from, and the context always determines the exact meaning. But God has given us the faculty to know the difference between right and wrong, truth and error. And so if Jesus is saying, don't judge, he might as well said, stop thinking. Stop being human. Because we have been made in the image of God, and we are to use our minds, and that means we are to be a discerning people between truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil. This is all part of what it means to be human and made in the image of God. How we judge, what we judge, are more the issues that Jesus is speaking to. But one thing is certain that he's saying, in that how we judge another, when we judge, we will be judged. And we all know that. He could be talking about being judged by others. He could be talk to, talking about being judged by God. Both are true. When you judge someone else, you are basically inviting that person to judge you. Be prepared. I remember hearing about two men who were in conflict with each other. One man um, confronted the other quite harshly, quite strongly. And the other man just went right back at him. And... Um, I remember talking to Russell Kelfer about it, who's been with the Lord now for a number of years, and, and, um, and I told him what had happened, and, um, and, he, and he, I was surprised. He's such a godly man. And he said, well, that first man reaped what he sowed. And if you sow judgment, you can expect to reap judgment. It's going to come back at you most of the time. But there's also in the sense which God will judge us as we judge others. So verse 2 says, For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. You're judging harshly, you're going to be judged harshly. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. I'm not 
100% certain I, I have this correct, but I'm pretty sure I do. In Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks about people who don't know Christ, Gentiles who do not know Christ, and he makes this statement, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to, to themselves, in that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. I wonder if one of the things that God is trying to get across here in, the, in our, everybody has a standard. Everybody has something by which they judge themselves and judge others. Even a person who never goes to church, does not call himself a Christian, there is, he is judging himself and judging others. So in that sense, Paul is saying every person is a legalist. Every person operates from law. There is a law that governs him. It may not be the laws of this country. He may look lawless as far as we're concerned, but even the most lawless person has something by which they judge themselves and judge others. Some standard, they say, this was what separates me from others and makes, others, and makes me good, not as bad as other people would see me. Something. Maybe just simply, I work harder than everybody else, and that's his law. And everyone, in that sense, is a legalist. And I wonder if Paul's saying, you know, God is willing to judge you according to whatever standard of judgment you choose. Maybe you don't want to accept the law of Moses. Maybe you don't want to accept what God says in the New Testament. I wonder if God's saying He is willing to judge you by whatever standard you choose. And you will fall short you will find yourself condemned. Whatever the law, the standard is that you impose on yourself and others, it will come back on you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Verse 4, let, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. That is not helpful. It is not humble. It is hypocritical. My all-time favorite speck in the eye story, I have to tell you. you we've all had a speck in our eye at one time or another. I, I had a little speck of wood in my eye once from chainsawing, and, and my dad had to take me to the doctor here in Bernie, and and he put a, took it out, put a patch over my eye, and it looked awful. It wasn't nearly as bad as it looked. It was painful while that little speck of wood was in my eye. Well, I, that's nothing compared to what a friend of mine went through. He was a missionary in Mongolia, the outback of Mongolia for 20 years. And he got a piece of metal filings in his eye. And not just in the front of his eye, it floated around to the back of his eye. And he is in the backwoods of Mongolia. There's not a doctor for a couple hundred miles. And there is no way to get that piece of metal filing out from the back of his eye. And he is in excruciating pain. Mongolian man standing there, and he said to my friend, I can get that out for you. 
And my friend said, whatever it takes, get it out. So are you sure? Whatever it takes, get it out. And so he says, okay. And he grabbed my friend by the head and put his mouth over his eye, sucked as hard as he could, and then stuck his tongue behind my friend's eye and wiggled it around till he got that piece of metal shaving and then drew it all the way back around and dropped it on the front of his eye. And then he's going, let me get it to get the, my friends, I'm good from here. I've got, I'm got. I can take it from here. Unbelievable. Little speck, lots of pain, but you would, now that's all you're going to remember the rest of this sermon. I'm so sorry. But you would rather have somebody with nothing in his eye to operate on you than somebody who has a plank in their own eye. And isn't it true, as soon as somebody criticizes us, the first thing we do is what? Try to see if they have the same problem. And then we can just dismiss their criticism. That's the error on the other side because the one criticizing us has the same problem, maybe even bigger. And so we can just dismiss it, we think. It's not right to dismiss it. But neither is it right to go after somebody else's speck when you have a plank in your own eye. Just want to give some thoughts, work through this a bit on what Jesus is and isn't saying. There is a lot in the New Testament about judging, pro and con. On the pro side, Romans 16, 17 to 18 says, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions. 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul writes very strongly and says, don't associate with, don't even eat with such a one. And in that particular situation, it was a man who, who was um, in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. 2 John 10.11, John writes and says, if someone comes to you with a different teaching, don't let them even enter your house. Those are all statements of judgment. We know that we, are, we have an entire book of the Bible called Proverbs where God wants us to learn how to judge between foolishness and wisdom, um, right and wrong, and, and God wants us to not be like unreasoning beasts but people who think and think critically. There's much that the Bible has to say in favor of judging. But the Bible has some warnings about it as well. When we are harsh and condemning, the Bible says we're out of line. James 3.17 says the wisdom from above, in other words, God's wisdom, is gentle, reasonable, and full of mercy. God is gentle, reasonable, and full of mercy. Why well, I appreciate those two friends that come readily to mind who could just say anything to you. And you would just smile and take it. Because they say it so winsomely, they're gentle, and lovingly. They are loving guys. So when my judgment of others is harsh and condemning, I'm not bringing life to them. I'm not um, moving them forward. I'm not helping them. I'm really just tearing them down. And though we may think we have a ministry of condemnation, we don't. We're a ministry of, of criticism. That's, 
that is not our ministry. I'm looking here for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul does speak about our ministry, and he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of judgment, not the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Hard enough to put those truths, those words, to, to practice in the workplace. But really, it begins in our homes. In our homes, we do not have a ministry of judgmentalism, and condemnation. In our homes is where it really should start, a ministry of reconciliation. Our words should not be meant to just simply correct, to challenge, to change, but to reconcile. And if I can't speak the truth in such a way that encourages reconciliation, I probably need to keep my mouth closed. This is his ministry that he has passed on to us, a ministry of reconciliation, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Judging others, speaking the truth, I would assume, we would hope, speaking the truth to others. But when we are hypocritical or lacking in honesty, it is wrong. One of the best things sometimes we can do when speaking into another person's life is to begin by saying, Lord, show me if this is true in my life. Typically, it will be. We've all heard that saying, if you see it in someone else, it's probably true of yourself. I have found that is almost always true in my life, that what I see in others that makes me upset if I will take it back to the Lord, the Lord is pretty faithful to show me how it is true in my own life. That doesn't mean I can't talk to another person about what I see, but it does mean now I can approach them not with hypocrisy, but in humility and honesty. And the goal then is not simply to correct them, but for the both of us to come to the Lord for the work that he can only do in our hearts. Judging is wrong. It goes along with what I just said, when it is without humility. When we think, and that really has to, when we, when we put ourselves in the place of God and make ourselves the, the judge and the executioner. James speaks to this and it's very clear, and he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And then in chapter 5 of James, he says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Very clear statements that speak to the need to, to be honest and humble and not taking the place of God 
when we judge others. To look at ourselves, to have God examine us as only He can, and to bring us to that place of humility. Judgment is wrong when it is without hope. How many times have we been there with people? We just, just want to wash our hands and just say there is nothing, nothing that I can do. Now that may be true. There is nothing that you may be able to do to see another person change. That's always true. We can't change ourselves. Certainly can't change anyone else. It takes God. But when we get to the place of thinking not even God could do something, now we're without hope. And that is the ultimate expression of pride when we think that even God couldn't or wouldn't change this person. Jesus gave himself for all of us, not just for some of us. And we all, therefore, have hope. If I become negative and pessimistic and without hope in regard to another, I don't have the mind of Christ. No person is beyond the redemptive power of God. No person. John Stott wrote, and he said, to sum up, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers, which help distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God. Good words. None of us want to live in a toxic environment. We don't want our homes to be toxic, but we can sure contribute to it. We want to be people who give life, who encourage life. Well, that means we have to speak life and can't just speak words that are poisonous. People thrive in environments where life is spoken, where words are encouraging and affirming and positive. And people die on the vine when we're in these hostile, angry, toxic environments. Oswald Chambers said, God shows us things that are wrong with other people, not so that we would, first of all, confront them, but that we would, above all, pray for them. Intercession, Chambers says, is why God shows you what's wrong with other people, so that you would first and above all intercede for them. That's where the real work begins. We are to be humble and helpful, hesitant and prayerful in our approaching others over what we see wrong in their lives. You remember that the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes, and the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. A judgmental spirit is not a, does not come from being poor in spirit. It's just as simple as that. It comes from pride. When I see myself better than others, which is often at the root of the judgmentalism, I could have done it better. I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have done that. What's wrong with that person? doesn't come from a poor spirit. But neither does rejection of criticism. If I'm rejecting everything somebody says to me because I see they've got a plank in their eye or I don't like the manner in which they confronted me, then I too am not being poor 
in spirit. I, I truly laugh about it. I, I, I've, one time I said in a sermon years ago that it's, though I never like seeing people leave the church, I appreciate it when people will come and tell me that they're leaving and why they're leaving. And there have been a, been a handful that have done that, and I've, I've appreciated it. But I remember one mom, um, she told me that she and her family were leaving, and then she, I don't know whether she just felt like she needed to give one little dig, you know, on, on the way out of the door, but she says, and my children never got anything out of your sermons anyway. <laughs> and all these wonderful Christian things come to mind when you hear something like that. And I just thought, well, just how stupid are your kids anyway? I, <laughs> I didn't say it. But I'm just saying that being poor in spirit works both ways. It works both ways. The one who is poor in spirit is not going to be quick in judging others. But the one who is poor in spirit will be quick to receive it, no matter how it comes or who it comes from. Not judging is not necessarily humility. It could be cowardice. To not speak the truth could just simply be cowardice. It could, in fact, be immoral. When you know something needs to be said and you don't say it, it is certainly often foolishness and, and irresponsible. While I was standing at the ironing board this morning, I had Fox News on, and they were complaining about um, how people keep looking for the government to do the right thing when we are unwilling to do the right thing ourselves. It's true, particularly when it comes to our kids and what they're being taught in the schools. And we kind of want somebody else to say something, do something, and the one lady says, my children are my responsibility, and it's my issue to protect them, and either to speak up or to get them out of the school. But I can't wait for somebody else to do what is my responsibility. Amen. So not being active in this exercising of judgment could be cowardice, could be immoral, could be foolish, and it could be irresponsible. So we shouldn't just blow this off as, well, God says don't judge. No, he says you will be judged as you judge. But there is no place that just simply categorically says never judge. As I said, you would have to stop being human because we have been given minds and we are to think and to think critically. Now, he says, this is why context is always so important, Verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Jesus just said, don't judge. And then a few verses later, some people are pigs and some people are dogs. Hogs and dogs coming from the mouth of Jesus. So clearly he's not saying when he says don't judge, never exercise judgment. But how you judge is going to come back on you. Don't judge with hypocrisy. 
but you need to exercise judgment. And he says, there are people in this world who do not deserve holy things. They will, as he says here, they either will trample them under their feet or turn and tear you to pieces. I've not had a lot of experience with, with vicious dogs. We had one growing up in our neighborhood down in Corpus. They kept him behind a fence, and um, two dogs, actually. And, they, and part of the reason they were vicious is because they constantly barked when you went by, and so all the school kids would go over there and harass them. We'd, we'd rake our books along the fence and just make them mad, and we'd throw rocks at them, and, and so they, they became more and more vicious. Well, they had one dog, German Shepherd, that was able to, to leap up on top of the fence and stand there at the corner and started watching for the kids to come by. And he knew which kids had been tormenting him. And then he would fly off that fence and come after us, terrified. In some places, at particularly at Jesus' time, dogs typically were not pets. And they were all vicious. I have a friend that was a missionary in Russia for, for a while, and um, he said the dogs there routinely kill people, and particularly children and, and the very old. The dogs would just take them down and kill them. If they were out walking at night, their lives were in danger from dogs. Vicious. Pigs also can kill you. I read a story recently of a Father and son that were out pig hunting, and they shot a pig, and then walked up to it, and the pig wasn't dead, jumped up, ripped open the son's um, femoral artery, and, and, and before they could get help, he was dead. Pigs are vicious. So these are not um, kind words. This is very extreme, but Jesus is not being over the top. He's being accurate. Some people are like that. By nature, they are violent people. If you don't think so, you're foolish, you're ignorant, and you're in for lots of trouble. But there are people in this world, particularly when it comes to holy things, are absolutely, by nature, violent people. So how do you know? You start a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden, they're just jumping down your throat because they do not want to hear about Jesus. Well, I didn't see that coming. Well, how do you know? Well, you got to talk about Jesus. And if that's the response that you get, Jesus would say, go somewhere else. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Just go over a couple more chapters. He's sending his disciples out, and... Um, on a little short missionary journey. And he says in verse 14, Matthew 10, 14. We'll start in verse 13. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Jesus says, just walk away. Just walk away. Our business is not try to convince people. Our business is to speak to those whose hearts have been prepared. 
And if their heart is not ready, that's okay. That doesn't mean their heart will never be ready. It just means it's not ready at this time. We went out to dinner, Patsy and I did, for, um, Friday night with a couple of friends, and I don't know how the conversation came up, but I told them, you know, it's been so many years now, thankfully, since we've had really any big difficulties at his hill with our students. But I know probably for the first 10 years or so that I was director, there were just some people that came to Bible school and you go, what is going on? <laughs> when they think this was? And they, and they just are unresponsive and difficult and disrespectful, don't care about anything that they're hearing. And, I, and there was three or four years at least where, where when the Christmas break came up, I just made a list and said, God, I've got half a dozen people, 10 people on this list sometimes. Sometimes it was as long as 10 or 12 people. And we've only, you got to remember, we only had 30, 40 students. And I've got 6 to 12 people on a list that I go, God, there has been no response that I can see from this person, these people, the entire time they've been here. If it's going to continue this way next semester, would you just keep them home? Just don't bring them back. I'd rather have a small group of people who are responding to the Lord than have a big group where they're not responding to the Lord. And so many times, as I prayed through that list, not a single one on that list would come back. And I'm not praying that, that you know, don't bring that person back. I'm just saying, God, if they're not going to respond, and you know whether this is right. It's not saying they never will, but if they're not going to respond during this time, then just don't bring them back. Bible says that one sinner can cause much harm. Not all people are going to respond. And when you talk to somebody about Jesus and they don't want to hear it, the only thing you should do and can do is to back off, pray for them, and maybe ever so often venture forward carefully. When you get that same instant hostility, not time. Keep praying. Keep praying. Love them. Pray for them. But be wary of them. And you may have to walk wide around them. So on the one hand, be very, very careful about judging. On the other hand, we need discernment to know when a person's nature their disposition, their spiritual aptitude is not ready to receive what we have for them. What do you do? You're going to be judged as you judge others, but you need to make a, make a judgment here. There are hogs and there are dogs, and you need to be aware of it. Well, that brings us to the need for prayer. Verse 7, ask, and it shall be given to you. Ask what? Well, in the context here, discernment. The ability to judge in a way that is godly, that reflects Christ, that is not crushing, but it's reconciling. In a way that's not hypocritical, but it's honest and humble. I need God for this. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. These are each present tense imperatives. So the idea is just keep on, keep coming before the Lord, asking and seeking and knocking, and God will hear you. He promises to. 
Verse 8, everyone who asks receives. Not some, everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened to him. That's an absolute statement. But again, in the context, he's talking about the wisdom that we need for living in this life and exercising judgment as the human beings made in the image of God that we are, to know the difference between right and wrong, truth and error, good and evil, and how to apply that knowledge with people that I love in a way that's going to work for reconciliation and not just condemnation, in a way that's going to be received knowing when and how. Oh, God, we need your wisdom. Amen. And Jesus says, come, ask and seek, and knock, and it shall be supplied. What man is there among you? If you think that God's reluctant or hesitant or any way unwilling to supply this wisdom that we need, what man is there among you that if his son were to ask him for a loaf, would he give him a stone? Or if he were to ask him for a fish, would you give him a snake? If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And when you're asking God for the wisdom and grace to know how to approach another person, God will supply that. He will supply that. Not to take too much of a rabbit trail here, but one of the reasons I like this verse is because it tells us, one, that God is good. He is a good father, and he gives good gifts to his children. But it also tells us evil men know how to do what is good. So whatever your doctrine or understanding of total depravity is, it ought to be able to accommodate that verse. Because sometimes I hear people say that people are so totally depraved, they can't even cry out to God. They don't even know. What's right? Jesus is saying, evil men know how to do what is good. They know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more your Father in heaven? I believe in total depravity, but I don't believe it's so, it's so bad that evil men can't know what is good and do what is good. And then finally, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them. My mother used to reverse that. She meant well. Sometimes she got it right, but I remember quite a few times it was not right. She did the opposite. And she says, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And it had to be that spoken that way because she was constantly breaking up squabbles between me and the brothers, and sometimes between the sisters as well, though she was a princess and she never got in trouble. At least that's what my dad told us. Your mother's a queen, your sister's a princess. And we go, but you're not here, Dad, all, the, all day long. It's not always that way. But anyway, my mom would say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That's actually what Confucius said 500 years before Christ. So my mother didn't know it, but she was quoting the Chinese philosopher Confucius. She was not quoting Jesus. Jesus is saying the opposite. It is true, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Do to others, do to others what you would have them do to you. That means 
taking the offensive, acting not just not acting in a negative way, but acting in a positive way, thinking, what would I want this person to do for me? In the context here of this paragraph is specifically when it comes to judging others. How do you want somebody to approach you when you need to be approached? I know I want grace. I know I want kindness, understanding. I want to have the person believe the best and not just assume the worst. I want forgiveness. I want a willingness to let simple mistakes go and not have them become criminal offenses. It's amazing how we can escalate the smallest things and make them bigger than what they are. When a person says, I'm sorry, please forgive me, you want it to mean it. You want it to be received and not used against you. You want to be accepted for your quirks, because a lot of times the problems we have with people are just their quirks. They're just quirky people, and we all are in some measure. I have two different men friends I know. I've heard them both describe themselves as peculiar. I'm a peculiar person, and they are. <laughs> I, would, I would concur, but we all are in some measure. Those are not things to be judging people about. You want people to be generous with their praise, generous with their thanksgiving. It just means so much. Most of us, none of us will ever, none of us will ever fully know where a person, another person is, how fragile they might be. Right? We just don't know. And for some people, one word of criticism means nothing. For another person, that one little word of criticism is all they can take. And they're ready to end their life because of one more little word of criticism. We had a professor at Columbia Bible College, Mr. Hatch, who walked around campus like the most depressed person you ever saw. Tall, gangly guy, and his head would just be down. He'd look at his feet as he walked. He'd go, what a depressed man. And he would speak, and it was like God just speaking through this man everything he said. Gentle, humble man. But he did really struggle with depression. But he was so empathetic, and it just radiated from him. Students would be lined, out, lined outside his office door, sitting on the floor, five and ten deep, for a 15-minute appointment to talk to this guy. One of his sons wrote, a, wrote an article about his dad, Mr. Hatch, and he had four boys, and he says one of his most vivid memories is four rambunctious, rambunctious boys sitting at the dinner table, just talking loud, gesturing, all kinds of noise, and looking at the end of the table, and the dad's just sitting there with his head down on his chest not even interacting. That's the kind of man their dad was, but powerfully used by God. And I remember him saying in class one time, we never know how God's grace is operating in another person's life. 
And what he meant, because he followed it up, and he said, for some people, getting out of bed in the morning is a miracle because the weight of life is so hard, so heavy on them. Other people just jump out of bed. Another day! His words were words of caution. Be careful about how quickly we judge what's going on with others because we really don't know. And many times people are much more fragile than what we realize. We had a student with us for an entire school year at his hill. And at the end of the school year, he stayed on for summer camp to be on maintenance. And during the staff training, he took his life. You never know how fragile people are. He had had a problem with alcohol and um, had tried to take his life before he came to Bible school. His psychiatrist, a Christian man, godly man, led him to Christ and said, now you need to go to his hill. And we had a wonderful year with him. Just marvelous, gifted, talented, smart guy. And at the end of the school year, he just made a bad decision, and he went out and got drunk. And he was so discouraged with himself, he called up his dad, and said, Dad, this is what I've done. So, son, you just made a mistake. It's okay. Go tell Charlie, I'm sure that you'll be met with understanding. He, um, he never came to me. Instead, he... He took his life. Who would have known? There were no warning signs. No discussion of ending life. No statement that life isn't worth living. I don't know how I can... There was no warning signs whatsoever. We don't know how fragile other people are. This is why in the body of Christ, of all places, people ought to be met with encouragement, with patience, with understanding, with kindness, because we all need it. We've all received it. And this is the place to come and not be torn up, but being helped to be put back together. We do evaluations at the end of every semester. We want the students to be honest with us and, and typically even when there is criticism, it's done in a very good way. It's great. But no matter how positive even the criticism is, how affirming the words are, even in criticism, by human nature, those words of criticism are the ones that we always latch on to. It's just human nature. There was a man that used to be in our church for quite a few years, and... Ever so often, he would call me up middle of the day in the office and say, how you doing? How can I pray for you? And he'd be on the phone with me five, ten minutes and asking me, well, you, know, how, you know, just specific questions, how I'm doing, how, I can, how he can pray for me. And before he'd get off the phone, he'd pray for me. What a blessing. And I think he probably had done that at least three times before I got off the phone with him that, that last time and thought, I never asked him how he was doing. 
So the next time he called, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? And I said, how are you doing? And he said, Charlie, this is one of the hardest days of my life. I don't know how I can continue living. And I said, I wouldn't have known. And he goes, I know. And I appreciate you asking. And he says, but whenever I get this low, I call somebody up and ask them how I can pray for them. I try to encourage them and ask them how to pray for them. I would have never known. This guy that just seemed to be just the encourager, gift of encouragement. He goes, that's not why I'm encouraging people. But I realize where I'm at. And I need encouragement. And what a tremendous man that he just said, rather than wallowing in the discouragement and the despair and the depression, he'd step forward toward other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Last night as I was spending some time in my office preparing for today, a brother came to mind lives in Canada, also known as North Korea. <laughs> and I realized, you know, I just thought, this guy's, the last two years for him have been particularly stressful. And I just thought, what can I do for him? And so I just fired off a quick text. And I said, would you and your family be interested in coming down to his hill and, and just having some time to vacate and to rest and to recoup? And I said, well, if, if finances are an issue, we'll help you. And he just right away, can't tell you how much this means to me. Would these dates work? <laughs> he, he, all, he all, I mean, and it was just the right time. But part of what moved me was just reading this verse again, preparing for this and saying, do to others as you would have them do unto you. We all have so much power in our disposal to bless others and to do good for others. And many times we just don't even think. But this again, if I'm praying, seeking, asking, knocking, if I'm praying, I believe that God will open our hearts in our eyes, to those that are around us, and how we can do for others as we would have them do for us. God does good. And he wants us to bless others. We should look for ways to bless rather than to just wallow in our discouragement and self-pity. I'm aware that sometimes we can become so depressed, some people in that state will never do good to another person. Never say a kind word. Not even say hello until you first say hello to them. Totally focused on self. Waiting for somebody to reach out to them. That's why I appreciated this friend of mine that in that state of great discouragement and distress, he would make the phone call and reach out to others. But the Lord Jesus wants us to be not like Confucius. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But the Lord Jesus, the highest standard 
do to others as you would have them do to you. And all of this in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, but especially this last paragraph, when it comes to our approach to others with what we legitimately see is wrong in their lives. Sometimes you just want people to say, I'm praying for you. Sometimes the confrontation is needed. If it's an unbeliever, if you were the unbeliever, would you really want somebody badgering you with Jesus all the time? Or would you want them to say, you know, I love you, and I'm praying for you. If I can ever do anything for you, let me know. I think that would speak so much more than doing what you would not want done if you were in their position. God is a good father, and he gives good gifts. And he wants his people to be thinking of how we can do good for others. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, um, I just thank you, God, for all that you are to us, all you've done for us. Thank you, God, that you sent Jesus into this world, not counting our trespasses against us. But you came, you sent your son that we might be reconciled to you. And you have given us that ministry of reconciliation. I pray, God, that in all that we do, in all of our interactions with each other, that we would give grace. That our words would bring life, strength, hope, joy to others. This is not what is our nature, God. It is your nature. And so once again, we come to you asking and seeking and knocking, God, for your ways, your heart, your life to be reproduced in us in our dealings with one another. I pray especially that you would open our hearts and our eyes to those around us, especially in the body of Christ, of how we can bless them and do good to them. In Jesus' name, amen.